This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of uh, Mark, uh, the 8th chapter, verses 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Well, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must be, deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. my mouth, meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord and Savior. Amen. So you've heard me at this point preach a number of types of sermons, and today I'm doing something in front of a bunch of former teachers that makes me a little nervous, and that's I'm trying to teach. <coughs> so we'll see how that goes. The sermon is going to focus on the first part of this passage that we read today, the Who do you say that I am? The modern search for the historical Jesus is one that started primarily in the 70s. With movements such as the Jesus Seminar, there were these new efforts made to rediscover just who this Jesus character was using the tools of modernity and post-modernity. And so at the time, we got fresh tastes of some of the new types of ways people were communicating and experiencing this character, this person of Jesus Christ. We were getting new stories that were different than what we'd seen before, such as The Last Temptation of Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ Superstar, or the very weird movie Godspell, which is Ellen's favorite. 
If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. These efforts to discover who Jesus was, historically speaking, was done through an effort to examine the words of Scripture in comparison to other pieces of Scripture, and to compare Scripture in comparison to other primary documents of the time, other first century authors and writers such as Josephus or Pliny the Younger who operated in their time as the historians of the day so that they might try to better determine who this Yeshua ben Yosef truly was. We've seen similar efforts in recent years. Every year it seems the History Channel or National Geographic or Discovery Channel makes an effort to re-examine the figure of Jesus Christ right around the Easter season. And of course there's always a pushback to that. There's always the people who respond in anger when any efforts are made to recontextualize or re-examine who Jesus was. But overall, what these programs seem to keep coming to realize is that there was a person named Jesus of Nazareth, and he did begin a movement that is with us to this day. Now these efforts were by no means the first of their kind. Such undertakings have been around at least since the days of Emperor Constantine in the 3rd century, when Constantine's mother, Helena, journeyed to what, to what was then Palestine in an effort to discover where it was that Jesus had lived and where the events of the Gospels had taken place. And so many of the sites that we recognize today, some of the ones that some of you here have visited, were toured and named by Helena, the mother of Constantine. Now some of these sites were more than likely embellishments or born of tradition and they may not be where some of these events actually took place, but through tradition it's where they take place. And what that means is they still hold value, they still hold significance in the Christian faith as in a normal year that's not in the midst of the pandemic. Millions of pilgrims would visit them every year. Efforts to bring Jesus Christ into the modern times have always been prevalent, and as long as there are Christians, as long as the name Jesus has any significance, this will probably always continue to be the case. But this is all just dealing with this idea of the historical Jesus, the question of who was Jesus in the world in history. But it says nothing about the question of who Jesus has been seen and understand, understood as by Christians throughout the centuries. Because it might surprise you to learn this, but the Christianity that we are a part of today is in many ways similar to the Christianity of the first, second, third century, but in many ways it's also different. Which brings us to these 
ideas of atonement. The method through which Jesus redeemed humanity. Now the most prevalent, the most familiar idea of atonement is probably the one that we've all heard that God the Father sent Christ the Son to earth so that he might suffer and die for the sins of humanity, taking on the wrath that humanity had coming, coming to it so that we might be covered by the blood and in many ways sneak our way into heaven. But what if that's not the only view of why Christ came? The atonement is a word that means at one with. At tone meant. At one meant. It means how it is that Jesus saves. But the word that you might hear following this word atonement is theory, atonement theory. Meaning that there are different views that have come and gone over the years. Some have been more popular, some have been less popular. Why is it? The question has always been that Jesus made his dwelling among us. And what we find when we look throughout the years, when we look throughout the centuries, is that these theories, these ideas of why Jesus came to live among us are as plentiful as they are creative and in most cases beautiful. I've already mentioned the idea that we're most familiar with, that Christ took on our suffering so as to allow us into heaven. And this view is commonly referred to as penal substitution, the idea that Jesus pays the price or takes the punishment instead of us. This view is a transformation of what was once ransom atonement, that is the idea that Christ paid the price that we owed to God and or Satan. And this is a view that was mentioned in the first hymn we sang today, the idea that Christ pays our ransom. In time, ransom atonement gave way to substitutionary atonement, an idea that said that Jesus took our place not so that he could take our punishment, but rather so that he could pay the debt that we owed to God. And that was mentioned in Come Thou Found when it spoke of debts. These are all ideas that are prevalent throughout the songs and the hymns that we sing and the words that we say, even if we don't understand the fine points behind them. There's another idea that says that the important part was not that Christ died, the important part was that Christ rose from the dead. That Christ trampled death and took the powers and the principalities of the world and placed them back into the order where they belong. And this is a view that you might be familiar with if you're a fan of the Narnia series. Because it's the view that Lewis put forward through the allegory of Aslan's defeat of the White Witch. The important part in the Chronicles of Narnia, or at least the line of which the wardrobe, is not that Aslan died on the stone table. It's that he rose again. Similar, we have, similarly, we have a fun word. We have recapitulation. 
which is a fun way to say restarting something. This is the view that says that Christ, in living, in dying, in resurrection, restarted or restored or redeemed these things, that all of these things are now made holy because Christ experienced them. That he made himself a part of each of our lives by experiencing it and thus redeeming it. This image is most commonly seen in the idea of the new or the second Adam, which Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. There's your plug for Sunday school in the Roman study. Learn what I'm talking about there. Basically, the idea there being that Christ has remade humanity, that we are no longer images of Adam, but rather we are images of Christ. There are so many more different ideas, but I don't want to overwhelm you. But the one that I want to mention last is the idea of the incarnational view of atonement. And as with recapitulation, this is the idea that Christ indwells, or that Christ is incarnate in all things. That Christ is living among us, that Christ is putting on flesh and continuing to dwell with us. That Christ is present in all things. We find this idea repeated time and time again all throughout the New Testament that in Christ we live and we move and we have our being, that through Christ all things are made, that in Christ all things are held together. That Christ is all in all. The reason I preached this sermon today, this more educational side of sermon writing, is that I wanted us to consider the nature of diversity. Because these represent a variety of views and a variety of experiences that look at and try to examine and determine who the person of Jesus was who the person of Jesus is. How it is that Christ operates in our midst. As I said, we are a part of a tradition that extends backwards through time on 2,000 years, and in this tradition there are so many different views. And yet so many have claimed that they hold the absolute truth, that this specific denomination has it more right than this specific denomination, or that the Protestants are the better than the Catholics, or the Catholics are better than the Protestants, or the Orthodox are better than everybody else. Some argue passionately about this part of the faith or that part of the faith, saying that this has to be correct, otherwise everything falls apart, or this has to be the way it is, otherwise you're not a real Christian. And so for years and for centuries and for millennia, people have split into more and more denominations, more and more groups. It began 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformers broke away from the Catholic Church, and from there it splintered a million times into a million different groups. 
And maybe that's a good thing and maybe that's a bad thing, but ultimately what it means is that we all have these different ideas. We all answer the question of who Jesus is differently. One of perhaps the most important lessons I learned in seminary, and it took me a while after I graduated from seminary to realize this, is that Perhaps the most important lesson of all is that we don't know everything. Is that we don't have an exclusive claim on who Jesus is. We don't have an exclusive claim on what is true when it comes to Jesus Christ. But what we do have is love. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, once said that though we may not think alike, we can at least love alike. We can at least walk hand in hand towards something more holy, more bound together in love. At the end of the day, none of us truly know how it is that Christ saves us. None of us truly know what salvation fully looks like. None of us truly know what this concept of heaven means or will look like. We have our ideas and we have our theories and we have our things that we hold to. But in the end, we're just looking at the same point from different angles. And when that same point encompasses all things, it makes it all the more complicated. And so I'll say when it comes to the views that I presented today, these different ideas of atonement, I don't claim one exclusively because the question is how could I claim one exclusively. All of these views have something to offer. All of these views have something of value. And at the same time, all of these views have limitations. Because what we find when we talk about the divine, what we find when we talk about Jesus Christ, when we talk about God, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, is that at the end of the day, words fail us. When we talk about the Trinity, for instance, we always have to go as far as we can in trying to explain it, and then at the end say, but at the end it's just a mystery that we can only partially understand. And so the view that I err towards, the view that I hold, is more what is known as kaleidoscopic. The idea that all of these views are correct in some way and all of these views are wrong in some way and it's only through looking through the kaleidoscope that we can see the big picture. As I said, if we only choose one atonement, then we miss out on so much. If we only chose ransom, then we would miss out on come thou fount of every blessings. If we only chose substitutionary, then we would miss out on crown thee. If we, if we only chose penal, then we would miss out on the Chronicles of Narnia. 
every Christian, every tradition has something to say. And when we stand together, what we might find is that we say something more valuable than we could ever say apart. And so in the end, maybe it's impossible to say for sure one thing or the other because for so many different people, Christ has been so many different things. For each of us, Christ has been different things at different points in our lives. When we have grieved, Christ has been Christ of the grieving. When we have been in poverty, Christ has been the Christ of the impoverished. When we are sick, Christ is Christ of the sick. And so the list goes on. Christ of the worker, Christ of the lost, Christ of the broken, Christ of the cross, Christ of the sick and the stranger and the weak and the poor and the mourner and the grieving. He is Christ who is always among and always sided with the least of these. And so I might say that Christ is one thing and you might say that Christ is another, but the question that we always have to reckon with, the question, the question that we always have to answer Christ when he asks us is this, who do you say that I am? And may we come to realize that we're always only answering our way. Amen.